You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. We're all just failed minus at this point. Like, oh yeah. Welcome to episode four of a Life in Ruins podcast. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johanna Nananananan <laughs> and David Howe. If you've been following us for a bit, you might notice that archaeology isn't just pyramids or that ancient aliens bullshit. It's the study of human behavior. And one worldwide human behavior that you've probably all observed is the practice of tattooing and body modification. Well, that's not really our niche, but luckily for you, we brought one of the world's leading experts on the archaeology of tattooing to talk with us today. In fact, he co-wrote the book on it. Tonight's guest, Aaron Dieterwolf, is currently the prehistoric archaeologist at the Tennessee Division of Archaeology. Aaron is responsible for managing prehistoric sites on state-owned lands, as well as conducting archaeological excavations and publishing research on the results of those studies. Most importantly, Aaron is a prominent advocate for public archaeology, as evidenced by his work with the state of Tennessee, his scholarly publications, and his new Instagram, at Archaeology Inc. So before the ink dries, let's put a pin in this intro and get to the point of tonight's podcast. All right, welcome to a Life in Ruins podcast. We're here with Aaron Dieterwolf. Dieterwolf. Uh, so, Aaron, <laughs> let me ask you the pertinent question of the day. Uh, how's the Nashville traffic? Uh, Nashville traffic is lousy, man. Thank you for asking. Yeah. yeah Did was, you survive uh, today? I survived today. You know, I've got to go like seven miles between home and work, and it, yeah, it takes a solid half hour to 45 minutes, depending on <laughs> the time of day. It's it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Dang, You're walking east, next right? to your car. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, no, it's, uh, years, years ago when I had a uh, fewer kids in the picture, I was actually with bike commute. And that took about half an hour or 45 minutes. So, uh, so, so now I'm just kind of losing ground, I think. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, uh, for those of you who don't know, Nashville is kind of one of those like big booming cities right now. And it used to be like a semi-quieter city. And now it's just like you can't go like anywhere without just being like in L.A. like traffic. It's crazy. Let's get into the actually the meat of the podcast today. So, Aaron, uh, would you like to tell the audience a little about who you are? We want to have you on here today to talk about anthropology. So, if you want to frame who you are in an anthropological sense for the audience, uh, I'll let you take the reins. Oh, oh, good. So, uh, well, I appreciate you guys having me. Um, yeah. So, my name's Aaron, and I, in my day job, I am the prehistoric archaeologist for the Tennessee Division of Archaeology. Uh, we're part of the Department of Environment and Conservation um, with the Tennessee state government. So, you know, under that big umbrella is everything from us to state parks to, you know, stream water management to natural species to crayfish, everything in between. And we are a very small cog in this much bigger state government entity. And I've been with them now coming up on 12 years-ish or so. Landed in Nashville back in 2001, uh, took a CRM job out of grad school and uh, made the big sell. Got, got my wife to leave Southern California and come to wow. Nashville. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. About every February, she reminds me of that. Um, <laughs> They're like and, the exact uh, same place, right? There's nothing different. Yeah, right. No, it's totally, it's 100% the same. Yeah. Especially Palm trees and... Or the summertime. Yeah, that's great. Um, anyway, we made the big sell and uh, was sort of in the right place at the right time when a gig with the Division of Archaeology opened up. And at the time I came on, I was, I think, the first new hire in about 20 years. 
And wow, since okay. that time, we were sort of reloading as people, people retire. Um, so since I started, we've, we've hired another five or six people. It used to be, I thought I was going to, yeah, I was going to be the guy in office space, right? Like eventually state archaeology would be like me in the bottom of the LNC tower with filing cabinet and they start locking my door and not letting me in. But, but no, we're, we're, we're with it, man. We're, we're gearing up for the future. So, so we're great. <laughs> You still have your red stapler? Yeah, right. I still have the stapler. Yeah. Uh, for the for the public audience here, um, Aaron, would you mind explaining that? Uh, I mean, does every state have an archaeologist? Is that like a common thing? As far as I know, every state does. You know, all states are uh, come under the Section One Hundred Six of the National Historic Preservation Act. So, in the very least, there's a uh, SHPO, uh, State Historic Preservation Officer. Uh, and part of the SHPO role is to permit archaeological projects that receive federal funding. Most states then also will have state state permitting related to projects that touch on state lands or you know state waterways or things like this. And so our office broadly handles both the federal and state permitting process. Um, and then I I actually am not a part of that. I'm part of then the information gathering and disseminating wing uh archaeology propaganda can we call ourselves that um so so you know working working with old collections and doing site inspections you know when someone's building a new shopping center in nashville and it's prehistoric remains which is like every tuesday um i'm the guy that gets called about that uh independent research educating the public all of these sorts of things very cool so um in your early life, what kind of got you into anthropology or archaeology? Yeah, so so my dirty secret is that I don't actually have a degree in anthropology or archaeology. Okay. Um, yeah, ooh, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Turns out you can play in the pool without the papers. Yeah. Uh, no, so uh, I got. I thought I was going to be a Mayanist, you know, along with along with so many other people, and uh, got interested in that in high school and took a class my freshman year of college on Maya art and archaeology and just kind of fell in love with it. Where I went to undergrad did not have a four-field approach archaeology program. So they had a cultural anthropology department and then separate from that, a biological anthropology department. I think it's like evolutionary anthropology is maybe the real title. Anyway, and uh, no archaeology. So archaeology sort of fell under the classical studies department at my school. Um, and so what that meant is, is that once I figured out that, hey, maybe I wanted to do archaeology, I, I kind of had no place to go because I didn't really want to major in classics. And so I ended up doing art history instead. And the reason for that was because it sort of gave me this venue into looking at, you know, broadly ancient art, ancient artifacts from around the world, and sort of just became this giant chooser on adventure process. I found a, a field school in Belize after my freshman year of college and went down and did that, then sort of engaged in this process of, so I'm going to date myself a little bit here. The, the internet was, was kind of a thing at that point, but, oh, but, but, but not, but not really a thing. And so what I ended up doing was basically cold calling anthropology departments around the country and just being like, Hey, my name's Aaron. And I hear from so-and-so that you may have a project going this summer. If I can get myself there, can I work with you? 
and uh, and eventually found a really good fit with uh, uh, Antonia Foyas, who at the time was up at, I think she's still up at Wheaton College in Massachusetts. She was doing work in Guatemala. And so I started going down there over the summer and working with Antonia on uh, late classic Maya sites. Anyway, and so this was this was a point in, I think, academia as a whole where interdisciplinary studies were kind of a hot thing, kind of a hot topic. And so when I applied to grad school, I knew I wanted to do Maya studies or I thought I wanted to do Maya studies. And at the time, two of the big sort of leading programs were Tulane University and uh, University of Texas in Austin. And, um, you know, Dream would have been to work with Linda Sheely at, at Austin, but she had just actually died my senior year. And so I ended up applying to Tulane and getting accepted there and in their Latin American Studies program, which at the time was awesome, man. I mean, it was, uh, I got fully funded for an MA program. I got a full semester just writing fully funded semester to just write my thesis. Um, you didn't have to TA classes or anything like that. And because of the nature of the program, you got to pull classes out of different grad departments. And because of all the folks that were at Tulane, you know, they, they, had a fantastic, they had a fantastic Latin American history department, fantastic art history department. Uh, Elizabeth Boone's down there. She does uh, Aztec codices and Aztec art. Uh, a lot of the Damn. anthropology classes are cross-listed in art history for that reason. And so I got to sort of pick and choose out of all those different classes and sort of build my own program on the way. So, yeah, I thought I was going to be a Mayanist. And, uh, you know, it turns out there are more Mayanists than there are jobs for Mayanists. Um, and, uh, that sounds about right. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't turn around in Belize without running into another Mayanist. And... Um, uh, so midway through my second year of grad school, I, you know, I sort of looked around the program and was like, man, you know, like there's at least a dozen people here who I think deserve those jobs before I do, right? Who like have the love and have the knowledge and should be professors. And so I ended up punching out after the MA and going into CRM, you know, and hey, there you go, man. You put a couple of 10 years of CRM under your belt. It turns out, you know, a few things about archaeology. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's kind of where we're all at right now. Yeah. Carlton's in school, but I think a lot of us wanted to be Mayanists. Like, cause that's like the cool, like sexy archeology span on this side of the world. Sure. Um, yeah. And like I went into undergrad and you have to take your like gen ed, like lab science classes. I, uh, I took astronomy because I thought that'd be cool to pair with like Mayan archeology span for whatever reason. Sure. And totally should have taken geology because I did not like astronomy because it turned out to just be like astrophysics and like measuring light distance. And it was not fun and <laughs> ended up doing paleo Indian archeology, span which required no math. <laughs> and a lot yeah, of rocks. I'm on, I'm on the same boat. I wanted to be an underwater archaeologist in the Caribbean, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, looking at Maya sites. And now I work in the Central Plains with no water and no forest. So uh, that was... Right on. <laughs> and that, to add a third part to that, I uh, the inspiration for me getting into archaeology was actually visiting uh, Chicken Pizza or yeah. Chichen Itza down in, <laughs> down in uh, the Yucatan. <laughs> so that... It's, it's funny how that can inspire us. And then we end up, you know, in Western Colorado doing pipeline work or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Central Tennessee. Yeah, sure. It's just as glorious. I used to, I used to get summers used to be bad for me. Right. Particularly once social media became a thing because, 
you know, every summer I'd see my cohort from grad school, people be posting these like, you know, and here's a temple and here's the stilo we just excavated. And hey, look at the jade workshop we're working on. And you're just like, oh, man, I found a flake today and a couple of pieces of whiteware. And it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> But it's gotten better since. Then. Yeah, we just like yeah, we're all just we're all just failed minus at this point. Like oh yeah, um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, but I think that's great, right? That like you know whatever that process is, that it's spitting people out the other side who still have like skills and knowledge to go on and do other things, right? Like we're not, and I think that's the great thing about I think at, at being at the MA level, I think that's the great thing about not going down that dissertation rabbit hole, right? Is that you're not so like head into this one particular thing and you've still got this kind of body of knowledge that you can put to different topics um you know so i end up in crn and end up in central tennessee and you know a decade or so later i'm talking about tattooing in egypt right i mean why the hell not (laughs) (laughs) no absolutely and i think that's like an excellent point like a lot of this you know quote-unquote sexy stuff in archaeology like you talk about egyptology maya aztec or the inca is is an initial draw to students coming into college or, or exploring the field of anthropology and i mean there's a startling realization when you get there like those fields are so saturated but people are able to find something like a niche for themselves that they find interesting somewhere else yeah um and i think that's a pretty you know big big point of our field and your work has is extremely niche and it's it's one of those weird things where people you know look back and say yeah no shit they did that right Right. why weren't why wasn't anyone exploring this before um like it's one of those like yeah duh type of things and um so what transitioned you into start starting to look into, into ancient tattooing. Exactly. Yeah. So it it actually started on a CRM project years ago, you know, sitting around at lunch on box screens, right. You know, scratching poison ivy and showing off new tattoos. And I mean, you guys know this, right? Every archeologist has an archeology span tattoo of some sort, you know, going back a decade, (laughs) everybody's got their, their, their Maya glyph or their, you know, Cocopelli pictograph or whatever it is. Everybody's got them and sitting there talking with people about it at lunch and, I don't, you know, I can't remember how it came up exactly, but basically started talking about the uh, the Theodore de Bry engravings from colonial Florida, right? So these depictions of the Spanish encountering Native Americans in Florida in the 1500s. And you know, there's a lot of problems with those pictures, right? The, the, guy, the guy who did those engravings, Theodore de Bry, he never went to the New World. You know, he borrowed liberally from different sources. He made a lot of stuff up wholesale. But, but you look at those things and the Native American bodies in those are just covered, right? Just head to toe covered with tattoos. And so we're talking about this at lunch and we realize that, you know, you juxtapose that with sort of the classic tradition of museum displays, you know, these kind of replica displays where they, you know, build build dioramas of people, people in their wigwams or, you know, people on the Great Plains in their teepees or things like this. And you're like, man, like I have never seen a tattoo in any of those dioramas. Like never once has there been a Native American body depicted as being tattooed. And and from there it sort of spun out into this, well, you know, so let's assume that what's happening in the 1500s is not new, right? That it's been going on for at least, let's say, a century, probably more than that. Well, then why aren't archaeologists finding tattoo needles? And, you know, I sort of like, that sort of sat in the back of my brain and I just kind of chewed it over for, 
I don't know, 10 years or so. And then uh, in 2009, actually had the, had the bandwidth to put together a session at the Southeastern Archaeology meeting on tattooing and body modification. Um, sort of, you know, starting to get into the same thing. Get, actually get into this idea. And for me, this is a really sort of a material culture thing more than anything else, right? As an archaeologist, why aren't we finding the tools? Well, either because they're not there, which is unlikely, or they biodegraded, or maybe we've just not been looking for them all along. You know, the, the old guard who, who wasn't tattooed themselves, who didn't look favorably on this practice, you know, had their own hangups about native culture and indigenous peoples. Maybe this was not a part of what they were interested in looking at. So, hey, maybe with new eyes and new technologies, we can, you know, we can step back and go, oh, hey, look, we can find some. And as it turns out, hey, look, you know, we found some things. So it's pretty cool. No, absolutely. And I think that's like a great point because, you know, we don't as archaeologists or even anthropologists aren't always look, we don't look for everything unless we know it exists. Right. So yeah. if we don't know that ancient tattooing was taking place, like what are we're not going to look for the signs of it. So maybe there's some bone needles or some cactus um, spines that are just kind of odd and they get mislabeled and we just, it, it's just lost. And a lot of that I think has to do with artifact classification. You know, when we pull things out of the art, out of the archaeological record, we call them what we think they are and we might not be right. Right. You know, so I, I mean, I've got, I've got a buddy who, who talks about the idea that um, a knife no, I'm sorry. It's, it's, he says a screwdriver is the perfect tool for opening a paint can. But that's not what the people who made the screwdriver intended it for. Right. So if we that's a really things, cool analogy. Right. If we pull things out of the archaeological record and say, well, obviously to me, this is X, Y, Z. Well, that may have nothing to do with the people who made it. That's all about me and our Western culture and modern interpretations. And so, you know, when you talk about tattooing, then you really get to the root of that. Like, this is a bone all. OK, fine except if it's not right it could be a gaming token it could be a hairpin it could be a tattoo needle when we call it a bone all and throw it to a museum that's all it's ever going to be unless we can get back at that somehow um yeah that's sort of, that's been a lot of my stuff is sort of the technology you know looking at the the wear patterns and technologies and things that we can use to reassess these old identifications yeah. And, and real quick, could you explain what a, what a bone awl is and what it looks like? Yeah. So bone awl is basically a pointy bone piece, right? So it's a, uh, a piece of bone of any type, animal, human, fish, bird, that is longer than it is wide and has a point on at least one end. And, you know, when we call things awls, right, A-W-L, what we're implying is that it's used for working leather or working hide. It's something that's used to punch a hole in leather or in hide, usually, you know, while making clothes or making crafts. So, so when we call something at all, it's basically a shorthand for pointy bone thing. Well, we need to go to our first break, but after the break, we will learn all about tattooing in the next ah, session. Well done. There we go. Yeah. Uh, I was going to do like a little voice for this, but I had to do the all joke. All right. We'll go we'll cut to break. <laughs> And we're back to the second segment with our guest, Aaron Dieterwolf. So, Aaron, you started out as a lithics guy. So you studied um, stone tools, and now you're trying to be more holistic. Is that correct? Uh, sure. That's Yeah, that's how we'll bill it. Yeah. In graduate school, so I actually did my, my master's thesis looking at this set of late classic Maya figurines from a site I was working at. 
which is, you know, again, pretty, pretty niche stuff, right? And so getting, getting out of grad school and starting work in CRM, I sort of focused mainly on lithic technologies, on stone tool technologies. And that was great. But once I started doing more research, um, you know, sort of getting back into actually trying to, you know, do, do academic work, um, actually publish things that, that meant something, something more than just like your average CRM report, right? So, you know, for the for your listeners who haven't done CRM, right, these are the worst things in the world. It's the report you write after you do a cultural resource management archaeology project. It's incredibly dry. It involves a lot of boilerplate. And it's basically like just a catalog of everything you found. And if you're lucky, there's a little interpretation in there. And so once I started focusing more on interpretive stuff, I started realizing that that Lithics was kind of lousy for that, at least for me. The other thing that happened was I started having a really productive uh, research partnership with my colleague, Tanya Perez, who is down at Florida State, and she's a Zoark. And so, you know, once you start working with somebody who knows animal bones, right, it totally it opens your eyes to this entirely new world of possibilities for interpretation. And it sort of took me out of that lithic silo and sort of got me thinking more about, you know, great. So there's stone tools or there's animal bones or there's, you know, this or that. Well, what does that actually mean? Right. So what does this actually tell us about the people who made them and used them? So if we can step back out of counting flakes or talking about even the biface manufacturing sequence, right? How many primary, secondary, tertiary flakes there are, and instead look at what that could mean at a human scale, both site-wide and in terms of the individual person making those artifacts, I think we, we learn a lot more about the people in the past. And so over the years, then that's sort of become this, this sort of bigger thing in my research. A lot of the sites that I work with just by default have been archaic period. So forager societies, let's say circa 3,000 to 8,000 years BC-ish, 10,000 okay. maybe BC, depending on where you go. And you know, we, we sort of have this traditional idea of forager societies, of hunter-gatherers as kind of, you know, living, living in peace with the landscape, not making a big dent on their environment, you know, not being, being very complicated socially, you know, perhaps not having what we recognize as religion or ritual and, and all that's crap, right? You know, that's all just unadulterated horseshit. And, <laughs> you know, a, a, big, a big part of of doing good archaeology is, is, you know, realizing that you can, you can, you can call bullshit on those things, right? You can go back into these traditional ideas of who people were in the past and be like, no, you know, that's fine. Yeah. They're foraging, but man, they were, they were really like, really, you know, altering the environment in which they live. They're domesticating plants and animals. They're, you know, practicing animist religion and ritual. You know, they are not living at peace with one another. There's a lot of violence in the skeletal sample and interpersonal conflicts. And, you know, we learn a lot more about who these people really were. And so that I think is sort of this, you know, this idea of being more holistic in our, in our interpretation of the past is, you know, trying to be more true to the people that lived it, right? To their lived experience. I don't know what we call this. Is it, you know, neo post processualism? Is it, you know, touchy feely hippie post processualism? <laughs> sure. I, I have no idea, right? Yeah. It's, it's something. I really love um, the progression because I did the exact same progression. You, you starting out as like a Mayanist, and you're like, okay, let's get into lithics because that's what you find on these projects that are really interesting yeah. and cool and give you these dates. Yeah. And then you've kind of, 
either you stay in that lithic silo like you were saying or you you kind of go down different avenues and for me that was like g, g using gis to do spatial analyses you know i thought i just think it's awesome that that's kind of how you 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 ran your life and i don't know if the, how normal that is but it feels pretty normal to me you know it's like oh these sexy points i found them at field school i want to study these right. for the rest of my life and then yeah. i don't know it just kind of sometimes doesn't pan out like that yeah right and i think a lot of that's deal with like what you work with it's the right tools for the job and the right theory for the job um you know if you're talking about like paleo indian archaeologists I mean, there's only so much they can use, and it's campsites, kill sites, and, and stone tools. They don't have potter yet. They don't have some of these other things, and, you know, um, things deteriorate in the archaeological record. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're dealing with a site that's, you know, 10,000 years ago, what's what's really what what's really going to remain? And so what what can you surmise um, theoretically for some of these things? Like you, we, we mentioned religion or some of these other lived experiences, like those don't always remain. Those rarely remain in the archaeological record because that's, you know, that's a, a lived experience that doesn't get absorbed into the ground. Well, and, you know, I think partnerships are important for that, too. Like I said, I've, I've had this this really incredibly productive partnership with uh, with Tanya Perez over the last you know decade now. And, you know, part of that is this natural progression of when you get when you get people together. And I think that's really the best thing that happens at conferences. Right. As we all sit down. We have a couple, three beers, and then someone says something like, but how do we know that Utsi's tools were hafted in this way? And, you know, and that leads to this two-hour discussion. And then, you know, three days later, everybody's like, you know, I think we said something about Utsi's stone tools a couple nights ago. Let's, uh, let's work on that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it sort of builds these collaborations then going forward. And I think that's, you know, that's the best thing for all of us, right, is knowing knowing who we can talk to because i think it's that idea of silos right we're all we all know very we, we know we know a lot about very specific topics and we got to be willing to you know add people into our research right add second and third and 12th co-authors to what it is that we're doing bring bring the best minds and the best top, best topics to bear and, and also then be willing to share our knowledge with other people um, you know, try to lift each other up, right? It's that the rising tide floats all boats idea. Yeah, fair enough. And just a just a real quick, just to recap, Utsi is a fifty three hundred year old individual that was found. He's he's a mummy. He's basically freeze dried. That was found in the Alps, bordering Italy and Austria. Yep. Yep. yep, yep, yep perfect. Got it. And. He had 61 tattoos on his body um, and was found with no, with uh, like completely preserved. And you can even see the um, the wound that killed him. Like it was an amazing like forensics cold case that dates, you know, f- over 5000 years ago. And he's in archaeology, especially. Yeah, straight up cold case on so many different <laughs> levels. Um, I mean, like he is just huge in archaeology because we have a freeze dried person with all of his clothes. Um, we have the pollen that's in his stomach from the food that he ate. We can track his movements throughout the Alps within the period that he died. We can see how he died. I'm pretty sure it was a projectile point that went through his back and into his. his it severed an artery in his shoulder, and that's and he just bled yep. out and was left there. And it's one of those things like, why did he die? And then more specifically, like his tattoos are extremely interesting and are talked about like what their function was. And would you be able to like elaborate on your thoughts on the tattoos on uh, Utsi, Aaron? 
Sure. Yeah. So, uh, um, you know, 1992 or 1993, I think they found this guy melting out of the ice um, on the Italian side of the Alps. And there were marks on his body that were visible when he was first pulled out of the ice. And in some of the very early news coverage of the find, you find a couple of places where people surmise that because he had these tattoos, surely he was a highwayman or someone of ill repute that must have you know, been turned on by his gang and left to die on the ice, right? So it's this fantastic example of the sort of biases that, that can shape, these, shape this work. Um, but we know now that there were at least 61 tattoos on his body. And, and most of his epidermis is gone, right? Most of his epidermis disappeared because of exposure to the glacier. And tattoos sit basically the juncture between your dermis and your epidermis. So, you know, think about that in terms not only of the chances that this guy is going to survive under a glacier, but that just enough of his skin disappeared, but not too much. You know, who knows? Another hundred years, none of those marks may have survived. They all might have been, that carbon may have been sucked out into the surrounding ice. Yeah. So it's just, it's in, this incredible happenstance that that this body was ever preserved to begin with. and. There's been a lot of these talk about his tattoos that they are groups of lines. There's a couple of cross shapes. They tend to be on his joints and they tend to align to the long aspect of his body. So they run up and down his arms or up and down his spine. And over the years, people have pointed out that some of these tattoos correspond to areas on his body where he suffered from arthritis or possibly from other ailments. And of course, we know this from his skeleton underneath. And so there's been this idea that his tattoos might be medicinal or might be therapeutic, that they were marks that were applied to treat his arthritis. And there, there, cross-culturally, there are examples of tattooing being used to treat ailments, right? Everything from spiritual possession to headaches. Um, and that's a really interesting idea. Now, at the same time, I will fight you about this, because just because we don't understand what three lines in a row meant to him didn't mean that those marks aren't symbolic, right? Right. You know, we, we're, we don't understand his art or his symbols. And so looking at these marks and saying, well, they are not symbolic. They don't have meaning. I just don't think we can do that. You know, I think that's, I think that's a step too far. Right. And I've, because of his tattoos, people originally thought he was some sort of medicine man or a shaman because of all the marks on him. And it wasn't until they started doing some of that skeletal analysis that you mentioned where they started aligning some of those tattoos with, you know, arthritis underneath at his joints that uh, some of those interpretations started to, started to change. And I know they've made yeah. a couple movies about him, too, which are interesting. So he started out as like a biker gang guy and then transitioned into like a, <laughs> a shaman, a shaman and, then, uh, and now, yeah. now he's just a normal person who might have been expressing his culture through, well, <laughs> through you tattoos. Know, yeah. Yeah. Before he, before he was murdered, shot in the back and left to die on a glacier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's I run. remember reading uh, when I was doing a research paper on like zoonotic diseases that Utsi had one of the earliest cases of Lyme disease. And I believe he also had like a severe dairy and gluten intolerance too. I, I, I know it was dairy. I think also gluten, but he had like one of those genes for that. So the dude was just probably like just walking in pain constantly. And then he just yeah, died he had, he had whipworms in his colon. 
right? He, uh, what, he had low, low grade arsenic poisoning, as I recall. Um, his hair follicles showed low grade arsenic poisoning. Yeah, I mean, he was. Uh, he, he was needs living the wrong. Oscar yeah. more than Leo does for the revenant. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and something kind of like roping it back in is that in order to f- see tattoos in the archaeological record, you need you need skin. And that yeah. rarely happens. If you talk to any archaeologist, they say they show bones. Unless you're a forensic anthropologist and see skin and organs all the time, you really need mummies. And yeah. uh, like, let's see, the oldest one that we have, and you know, there's some that show up in Peru with the mocha, with the moche, and then also in the Philippines, um, the Iboloi culture. I probably butchered that, but those are all you know AD um, mummies. Um, well, and it- it's all over the world, man, honestly. So, you know, one of my side projects is the Tattooed Mummy Database, um, which is just sort of this running list of every tattooed mummy that I can run down. And they are, you know, starting with Utsi, let's let's call him the oldest. The, the pre-dynastic ones out of Egypt that were found, what, a year or two ago now are pretty much contemporaneous with Utsi. But, you know, from there, they basically cover like all four corners of the earth, except for Australia, all the In way America. up through... Yeah, yeah, in Antarctica, um, all the way up through the late late centuries AD. So yeah, it's it's a global thing. Yeah, and but you you okay, I was going to say you'll find a lot of you'll see a lot of skin at archaeological excavations. It just won't be prehistoric, right. at least in the past. You know, <laughs> it's a lot of red <laughs> upper asses, right? <laughs> Sweaty, that's, that's the real archaeology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I meant to ask you here to kind of get back to like the, I guess the, the point of the, we're kind of off track here, but I'm loving the conversation. Um, with all How this like side projects, <laughs> with all the side projects and stuff that you have going on, like, does your job allow you to do this? Cause I, I, my job has been really great in letting me just like gallivant around the world the past year. So like, are, are they treating you well there? Oh, they're fantastic. Yeah. It's, um, I, I managed to get the independent research in, depending on what it is in the topic. Um, I have some leeway if it can be tied into, you know, my local archaeology, for example. So looking at tools from here in Tennessee or looking at Native American questions, um, you know, I have leeway to do that uh, to a greater or lesser extent. You know, when I start looking at things like uh, Egyptian mummies or things like that, that's a little more on the, uh, the old vacation time there. Okay. You were teaching at MTSU at some point too, right? And was it on tattooing? Yeah. So I've been, I've been adjuncting a class down there for them since 2009 or so. Just about every semester I'll teach there or I'll teach a section of intro to world prehistory, which is just a you know, non-major gen ed course. And then starting in 2013, they, they let me develop a upper level anthropology of tattooing class. And so I'll teach that about about every two years now. I uh, just taught it last fall. So it'll probably be next fall of the year after before I teach it again. Sure. Well, that's cool. Did you do you enjoy being an adjunct? I've heard um, varying degrees of enjoyment uh, as being an adjunct. Yes, I really enjoy being an adjunct, but that's because I have a real job. Um <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I have a full-time job in healthcare and uh, a wife who's a lawyer and um, supports my archaeology habits. And so what that means is that, you know, I, I have the freedom to, to pick up a class and not have to worry about the money, right? The most valuable part of doing the adjunct thing for me has been getting university library access because that's not actually something we have through the state. 
So getting yeah, yeah. access to JSTOR, man, that is, you know, that's worth its weight in gold right there. Well, absolutely, absolutely. It's like the academic Netflix subscription. Like you, you have to have <laughs> someone that has one to like get it. Like, yeah. When mine finally expired last year, I was like, oh, what the hell do I do now? And <laughs> like, I couldn't like, yeah. look anything up. But yeah, yeah. So at this point, we're going to lead into our second break. We'll be back and we'll talk about how tattoos form on bog bodies and how legit they are. Unless huh. Aaron leaves this conversation <laughs> right now. <laughs> and we're back to our third segment uh, here with Aaron Dieterwolf. So Aaron, David has informed us of a particular aspect of archaeology that you thoroughly enjoy, and that is uh, bog bodies and the possibility of tattoos <laughs> on, on those bodies. Now, real quick, bogs are important in archaeology because if you find something in a bog, bogs are anaerobic, meaning that there's no oxygen that, that deteriorates these things, so they're highly pristine. So, uh, uh, David, do you want to elaborate on this on this enjoyment that Aaron has for bog bodies? Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of the oldest atlatls they found comes from bogs, and I think bows, too, so it's just like bogs literally hold the secrets to everything so there needs to be a, an investigation of just bogs around the world but anyway yeah so a lot of people were saying that these bog bodies that they found i believe somewhere in europe had tattoos like all over them but then i also understand that you don't feel that way yeah, yeah so um <laughs> so don't don't shoot the messenger on this one man sure, so sure. um you know so for starters uh i i should i should put this back on you because this is kind of your fault um, so oh. <laughs> David had this, had this idea that I should do this Instagram and, uh, he's actually, <laughs> oh, yeah, the, uh, right. the, he's actually the reason that we started this new Instagram project, this archeology span Inc. Fascinating shit about ancient body modification. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, you know, as, as you guys probably know from Instagram, you, you're, you're limited in what you can post, right? So you gotta, you gotta sort of weigh that like number of words you want to bore your audience with versus the picture involved. Sure. And, um, Anyway, so this this project is I think it's a great project. It was, you know, after David suggested it, I, you know, sort of soul searched about it a lot because I wasn't sure that this was something I wanted to do. It's a little bit, I don't know, those that's a little bit new social media for me. I'm more comfortable on the it, Facebook. Yeah, a thousand followers this week. Yes, it's going well. It's, you know, people are interested in it, right? Yeah. But again, this is the silos idea. Like, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are way, know way too much. And if we can draw this information out. Well, anyway, so one of the posts that we put up was about blog bodies. And so the short answer here is that, you know, there are these bog bodies, these preserved human skeletons and skins that have been found throughout Northern Europe over the last century or two. And you'd think, well, okay, we have preserved skin. Well, if these are ancient people, well, then maybe they were tattooed. And there was this one researcher, and honestly, I can't even come up with his name right now, who, um, you know, in the early 20th century, I believe, published a series of, of articles in German talking about how hundreds of these bodies were tattooed, had tattoos on them. And that's sort of, it's one of these things that sort of entered into the conventional wisdom, particularly of the tattoo community. You know, there's obviously a very strong uh, European tattoo scene right now. And a lot of these sort of traditional designs, you know, um, uh, neo, sort of neo, neo-pagan, um, you know, Viking style designs, all of this kind of thing are, are very popular. And so there's this uh, appeal to the idea that, you know, this is following a tradition that is several hundred or several thousand years old. 
you know, people like seeing the, like the idea that, that what they're doing has these roots. But the fact of the matter is that none of the existing blog bodies that have been reexamined in the last decade or two have tattoos on them. And this is even using, you know, infrared imaging and alternative light sources and things like this. They're just not tattooed. And some other researchers dug back into this earlier publication that said all of this about the blog bodies. And it's just rife with errors, right? Like they, they figured, I think they, they like less than 3% of the bodies that this guy talked about, they could actually corroborate that they even existed. Um, <laughs> sources that he cited just didn't exist. Um, people that he said he'd interviewed didn't exist. Um, you know, all these kinds of problems. So it basically just comes down to this, like, it seems to basically be this one guy's fantasy. It may have been rooted in the fact that he published this around the same time that the the Pazirac bodies in Siberia were found, which is the, you know these very famous Iron Age uh, horse rider culture with these you know these fantastic animal designs all over them that are that were recognized as being tattoos. And so maybe he was you know interested in getting that same kind of attention. We just don't know. He's he's not alive anymore. But no, the short answer is that bog bodies are not tattooed. At least that we can confirm. Okay. And I, I, someone on your Instagram had like kind of poked like, or had brought that up, right? Is that, yeah. Cause that, that's something I want to talk about. Like with this, this new frontier, as it were, that you and I are venturing into with the, the social media archeology. span Like I've gotten some weird comments on things too. And it's like, not only do we like make ourselves the, the spokespeople for our various niches, but like, then we also have to like police that kind of, you know, it's like, you're like, yeah. How do, how do you yeah. break someone's heart? Right. It's, it's like breaking yeah. up with someone. Yeah. You gotta be like, you know, you know, it's not, it's not you. It's the blog bodies. We can still be friends. <laughs> yeah. And like, like you just want to keep up like the, the good science, but then I'll get some like weird, like comments in there about like someone once said, like, I doubt that wolves and dogs are the same thing. Cause like, I think fennec foxes look just like chihuahuas. And I was like, well, like, Fennec foxes are foxes and not <laughs> so like I just like didn't know how else to like say it without like I don't know I'm getting into something different no but it's it's true you know that's that's an, that's constantly an issue with public outreach and archaeology right is you know, I'm sure you guys have been in these situations where you give public presentations or you know you're talking to elementary school I mean you know the perfect example right is you know I go talk to my son's elementary school and, you know, the first thing you say is, you know, hey, archaeologists don't dig up dinosaurs, blah, 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 right? And then you finish and you ask for questions and 13 hands go up and every one of them wants to tell you about the Tyrannosaurus skull they found, right? Sure. It's, it's yeah. you know, anytime you talk to the public, you know, there's that question of what, what gets through and what meets up against the episode of Ancient Aliens that they saw last night. And so, yeah, you know, you're, you're going to field questions about, about giants and about aliens and about, you know, the lost tribes of Israel and the scarab, oh, yeah. gold scarab beetle that was buried on Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga. And, um, you, you know, take your pick. Right. And sure. part of it's learning to deal with those things as they come up in public settings where, you know, you want to be you want to be appreciative of the fact that people are interested in this topic and you want to tell them the truth or the, you know, the archeological truth as we best understand it, but you also don't want to tell them they're idiots because that's not doing anybody any good. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and so you got to find that middle ground. Yeah. It's how much time and energy do you want to like put into 
correcting people at, at some junctures. I mean, being in the social media world and talking about things, you often come, it's like, how much time do you actually want to put into it? Well, especially if you have like a thousand followers or something, you know, like, you, yeah, that's a lot of time no. to put into it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I was just at a, a recent family event. Uh, my niece graduated and, you know, my it was my American Indian family and they were asking me about giants and giants in the archaeological record. I get I'm just like. Lot. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, they don't exist. And then my cousin was just like, well, I know this high school social studies teacher who says he's found giants and he knows they exist. And I'm like, congratulations. I don't know what to tell you. They don't, yeah. they're not around. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, it's, and, and with, like, I can imagine with you, David, with ethnosynology, the stuff that you get, and even like now that you we're branching it, right? out. It warms my heart. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm glad. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, um, but like just some of these other things, it's just like with with other public outreach events, you get comments from people. Like I did a I did a YouTube interview where I was talking about human sacrifice, and that the amount of comments I got from that, it was just like I don't have time for this. I don't have time to address every single ridiculous question or comment that I've gotten from this. I have yeah. a PhD student, like. Anyways, so like what what kind of from your archaeology ink and I absolutely love that Instagram by the way. Like that's just phenomenal. Oh, good. Thank you, man. Um yeah, it's been like great. what what are some of the more interesting comments or questions that you've received from this this public outreach venture? I have actually not received a lot of comments yet. At the beginning there was some some pretty good dialogue going between a couple of us that are contributing it to it. And a couple of our friends. So, you know, this is this, you know, this sort of social media interaction that, that had been happening sort of out of the public eye, right? University of Facebook that had been going on for a long time. And some of those discussions then started taking place in the comments sections of the Instagram. And I think those are great. And, you know, they, they sort of balance between like, you know, people who are very hard and fast, like, you know, science is science and, you know, everything else is bunk. And people who then, um, you know, because of the subject matter, may lean more towards, you know, sort of new age mentalities and ideas. Uh, new age spirituality is related to tattooing and body modification. And, you know, there's a lot of common ground there. But, you know, if it swings too far either way, people are going to, someone's going to call someone an asshole and, and ostracize other people, right? Yeah, and so yeah. keeping it, keeping it civil is, I think, really, really important. So far, you know, I've just gotten I've gotten some really nice comments along the way, but it's there's not actually a lot of discussion that's happened. And, and I'm honestly, I'm not sure why that is. You know, some of it may be that, like, you know, when I'm talking about these South American mummies, you know, maybe there's just not enough people that know enough about them to kick into that. Sure. You know, I'm, just, I'm not sure what the what the reason for that is at this point. Maybe that just comes with like more followers. I've kind of often wondered that, too, like. Like just either that or like or like sexy audience. the sexiness of the, the Dude, archaeology. All I, I mean, is, like all you have to do is drop something about evolution and the <laughs> oh, absolute right. vitriol that will occur yeah. is just amazing. Cool. I, I I don't know if you have this guy named Archaeology Gains his Instagram. Uh, I yes, hope to God he yeah. yes, I absolutely love watching his posts and then because he'll comment people and he'll roast them and it makes my day because I'm just like yeah yeah this is. This is our Instagram warrior right here. And I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure he's a follower of this podcast. So if Archaeology Gains is listening, dude, you have my full 100% support. So I had a really interesting experience with a co-author recently. Um, this guy, Andrew Gilworth Brown, um, who's out at uh, University of Washington. He, he brought me on. I rode shotgun with him on this paper identifying this 2,000-year-old cactus spine tattoo tool from Utah. 
And it's, I don't know what happened. It, it hit at a really, I think their, their university did a really good job putting it out on Eureka Alert. And it hit at a, you know, one of these weird media moments where it just blew up. And so, you know, different, new, different media outlets are covering this story, you know, stealing from, stealing text from one another and copying and pasting without editing and, you know, writing their own things about it without talking to the authors and all of this. But of course, you know, the comment sections on those stories are just a hot mess, man. I mean, (laughs) I mean, internet comment forums are just terrible to begin with. And when you get into a topic like tattooing, it's just like, it's just just freaking awful. But so in a lot of these stories, people were, you know, just kind of off the wall theorizing and, and Andrew did a fantastic job of actually like, taking the time to track all of the coverage and actually going into the comment sections using his real name, you know, not being like archaeologist 420, but actually like, you know, like using his real name as a handle <laughs> just to pick one. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that guy. I'm sure he's out there, um, but you know, using his real name as a handle and actually then answering people's questions and, and not just answering them, but saying, you know, Oh, Hey, you know, actually, I'm the first author on this, and here's the answer to your question. And it was really well received, man. People really, really seemed to respond to that. So it was like that direct engagement was like a more efficient way of kind of doing this as opposed to just kind of publishing and having that data stay in academia and having it exist there. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's efficient, right? I mean, it yeah, takes yeah, yeah. a hell of a lot of his time to do it. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> but it, but at least, you know, individual people are then getting their queries answered instead of just throwing them into the void. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's that's really interesting. And I do want to mention that that tattoo, that that needle thing, um, you were quoted and talked about in an article from National Geographic about that 2000 year old needle tattoo. Yeah. Yeah, that was a nice little that was a nice little piece of coverage. We reached out to them ahead of time and sort of gave them first first crack at it before it came out. And so they, you know, they had the, the author of that piece had a, had the time to you know actually talk to each of us individually and build a story around it, which was pretty great. Cool. No, it's absolutely phenomenal. For any of our followers, that's at National Geographic. Um, the title is 2000 year old tattoo needle identified by archaeologists by Krista Langlois, L-A-N-G-L-O-I-S. So please give that a read because it's absolutely it's a really short and phenomenal piece. Carlton was asking me about this earlier today. And I know, Aaron, you're probably one of the foremost authorities on this. But like uh, Carlton's very interested in, in getting that was in air quotes. <laughs> oh, okay, go ahead. Sure, sure, true. You at least know more about it than I do. We'll say that he would love to get a hand poked tattoo. And like, would, are you able to talk about that in any like capacity? I know you might, you have one, right? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I mean, hand poke tattooing is a thing, right? And a surprising number of my Instagram followers are hand poke tattoo artists. Go figure. Really? Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, here, here in the States, people tend to do mainly, you know, electric work. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, individual health codes, depending on where you go. You know, tattooing is not regulated at a national level. It's more sort of at the municipal level. But if you go to, for example, tattoo conventions in Europe, there are whole rooms of people who will be doing hand poke tattoos or will be doing, you know, Polynesian uh, hand, hand tap style stuff. You know, these artists, I mean, they're all over the world, man. There's a, you know, there's a strong tradition of this. And you can... You can do hand poke or hand tap tattoos and meet the necessary health codes even here in the States. It just takes jumping through some hoops and, you know, thinking a little creatively to do it. 
Um, you know, of course, you know, hand poke tattooing gets, gets a bad rap because it's, it's stick and poke, right? It's what everybody does in their basement with their buddies. And, you know, that is, that is dangerous. Bloodborne pathogens are a thing. You should only get a tattoo by someone who's been trained Listen up, in man. these trade right exactly <laughs> trained in dealing with bloodborne pathogens in the setting of a tattoo shop. Now, having said that, a lot of people don't. I have one. I have friends and colleagues who have several at this point, and this is the fault of science. I'm going to say because you know. So I started down this research track of like you know how do you how do you tell when an artifact has been used to tattoo. And started looking at the idea of, of microscopic useware, right? The idea that when you use a tool for something, it leaves a distinctive microscopic pattern behind. And so when we started doing this work, we were doing it with pig skin, right? Pig skin is a pretty good forensic proxy for human skin. But, yeah. you know, once you start like making a bunch of artifact replica possible tattoo tools and have them laying around, you know, it's just a matter of time before some genius sits up and puts their beer on their forehead and says, I've got an idea. You know, <laughs> how, how do we know? Puts their deer on their forehead? Their beer on their forehead? You guys on the beer, beer, oh, beer up to your forehead when you want to talk? Uh, no, maybe. I okay, sorry. That's the thing. Put your deer on your head, forehead. I was like, what? Oh, that, that could be a thing, right? <laughs> I thought it was um, like a light bulb, but instead of a light bulb, it's a beer. It is. It's, it's a beer. Beer can instead of a light bulb. It's exactly right. Anyway. That's our new uh, says, logo. <laughs> how do we know that dead pig skin leaves the same wear signature as live human skin. And ah. <laughs> well, we don't, no one's tested that. So let's yeah. go get the bone needles. <laughs> and, you know, and this is where it takes a turn, right? And I, I, you know, this is the, the joke is right. Experimental archeology span turns into experiential archeology. span <laughs> so not just the act of making, but the act of receiving as well. And, you know, this is this is an interesting process. And, you know, it's, it's certainly it certainly has taught me a lot about, you know, both how much it hurts to be tattooed by a cactus spine, but also, you know, the logistics involved in crafting a tool that you can do that with and using it and cleaning it and storing it and all of these other things. Um, yeah. So, you know, it becomes a part of the dialogue then, a part of how we understand these these possible tattoos in the artifact record. So that, that only leads to my next question. For the audience who's like not used to anthropology or might not be anthropologists, where do you feel that like our, a tattooing sits in like the realm of like anthropology? Like where does it, what does tattooing mean for like humanity in like an anthropological sense? Oh, um, wow. Well, <laughs> I should have asked um, that like a little more like dumber, but it no, 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 no. I yeah. mean, it's, you know, I, I think, I think at this point in our, you know, at this point in our collective history, let's go ahead and say that like 50% of people under age 30 have at least one tattoo. Right. Um, I think we all you know, do the, here. The, yeah. The, you know, the, the, the statistics are shifting. I think the last, the last Pew research poll was a couple, three, four years ago now, but you know, particularly among the millennial generation. So, you know, this Ew. thing is not, it's not unusual. And I think that that gives us a chance to look at it with, with fresh eyes and, when you do that, you start to realize that it's that it's global. I mean, honestly, I would put it on the scale. Now, I, okay, from a very pro-tattoo standpoint, I would put it on a scale of something like ceramics or fire, right? That seems to be so deeply rooted in our human condition that all these groups throughout human history all over the world have done this thing. 
And we can't parse out yet whether they all invented it on their own or whether maybe it's one of these things that's as, that's as old as Homo sapiens, right? That, that sure. our ancient ancestors carried out of Africa with us. We, we can't figure that out yet. I'd love to, um, but, but we're not there yet. But you know, you're looking at this, this practice that's, that's global, that's ancient, and that is very different depending on where you go and that yet shares a lot of similarities in the reasons that it's done and what it means to the cultures that did it. And it's one of these things that we're losing until very recently has been vanishing very rapidly. You know, this was, this was one of the many things that colonialism and, you know, introduced diseases and Christian missionization did a really thorough job of stomping out all around the world was these indigenous tattoo traditions. And we sort of are at this critical moment where, you know, over the last two or three generations, the last tattooed elders have died or the last tattooed elders are now alive. And so in some cases, there's been a rupture in those traditions and people may never be able to reclaim them for what they were. In other cases, there's still a chance to to save that knowledge, you know, to get back those things that were taken from indigenous cultures all around the globe. And so that I think is is the most valuable and most important thing is is this this idea that it's part of it's part of individual identity and it's part of you know both on the global scale and on the individual cultural scale and that if people can refine that you know it helps us all sort of find find a center find a place in this global culture while also manifesting you know the, the things that are good about our individual cultures about those individualities about those unique that uniqueness that different cultures have well, on that on on that point, I think this is a a good place to stop. And thank you for that just fantastic answer. Yeah. Uh, we really appreciate. And thank you for being on the podcast. Because this is called a life in ruins, we always have to ask at the end: if you had your choice, would you would you do it again? Would you be an archaeologist? Yeah, absolutely, man. No doubt about it. You know, I I have landed in a great place. Uh, I think I'm really lucky compared to some of my peers as far as you know, the job that I have and the structure that I have to work in and the research that I've been doing, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's, you know, it's what I want to do and it's what I really love doing. Oh, thanks, Aaron. Um, And we're going to shout out his Instagram at Archaeology Inc. That's right. Um, And yeah, we we just interviewed Aaron Dieterwolf, an archaeologist who studies tattooing in the past and who works for the state of Tennessee's Division of Archaeology. So we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So I've never understood this before. Why is it so hard to find evidence of tattooing in the archaeological record? Jesus Christ, I don't know. I don't know. Why? I mean, you could describe it as finding a needle in a clay stack, but no one, not always clay, some gravel stacks or stand stacks. (laughs) You're off. You're fired. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. 
visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.